I can easily believe that there are good ways of believing and confessing the existence of hell if it's out of motivations of love and justice. But you can't have justice without love. So people who say, well, I want justice, but then they push justice to where they're willing to do or say unloving things to other human beings, that's where I draw the line. Welcome to the Depolarized Podcast. I'm Dan Koch. And I'm Ellen Morrow. And this is the show where we try and find common ground at the intersection of faith, politics, and psychology. Ellen, we are doing the first installment of a new kind of episode, a new segment. But I think rather than just describe it to you ad nauseum, I'm just going to play you this clip. Yeah? Don't say nauseum to me ever again. <laughs> okay. Well, here's this clip anyway. For Lucy, loneliness was a way of life. But the moment she saw Peter, she became a believer. Then fate stepped in. What can I say, Peter? I was never envious of anything that you had until now. Caravan Pictures presents Sandra Bullock in a film about love at second sight. Who are you? While you were evangelizing. It's so dumb. I'm so excited you did that. Uh, okay. It's called the segment or the episode type is called While You Were Evangelizing. Obviously a play on While You Were Sleeping, which you said is one of your favorite See, movies. You just over explained it. And now it's not as funny. It's still funny. It's still funny. Uh, so let me explain what that means, because it's not at all clear from the hacked movie trailer what it is. This is basically what I mean. In season two. We talked a lot about evangelicalism and what we called parallel institutions. These were parallel of secular pop culture. So we had Christian music and books, Christian clothing companies, straight to VHS Christian TV shows. What's <laughs> up, McGee and me? Oh, my God. Christian school curricula, Christian schools, Christian colleges, Bible colleges, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We had all of it. And we think that this kept us from secular culture, which it did, right? Yeah. Except for the time that I bought a social distortion album and there was like a the image of a prostitute inside and my conscience was so bad that I had to go to the warehouse to return it oh <laughs> before I could sleep at night. Anyway, mostly it did keep us from secular culture, but it also kept us from another branch of Christianity, more liberal leaning mainline Protestant culture, Methodists, Episcopals, Lutherans, etc. And these churches were down the street. I remember them seeing them all over town. There was multiple within a 10 block radius of the church that I went to. I just didn't know what was going yeah, on. Yeah, and I think I probably assumed they were all old people in there. And they, and they may well have they been. They might well have been, but. <laughs> but these communities of Christians, sad to say, largely unlike evangelicals, have spent most of the last 70 years engaging very seriously with the broader culture in America. And they have come up with some pretty good answers to the kinds of questions that often lead evangelicals to leave their church or leave the faith altogether. Hell, the status of people in other religions, physics or evolution, women in ministry, homosexuality, the problem of evil, on and on. Liberal mainline Protestants and evangelicals, however, are all in fact Christians. We are all Christians. We all confess the same Lord. And it's time that we shared some notes, I think. So this segment is designed to pull back the curtain to give those of us who were raised evangelical a look into what was going on just down the street all those years. Welcome to While You Were Evangelizing. It's embarrassing. 
<laughs> what do you think? I love it. Let's do it. Okay, so today's topic is hell. And if you are one of the people who comes to this show for the politics and the psychology <laughs> and you're pretty bored with the with the religion, feel free to go listen to something else. Although what's more exciting than hell? Is there anything more exciting? There uh, the if you were to be able to experience or see it, that's true. But talking about it in an abstract way is probably not as exciting as like depicting it. Right. Even that was so boring. You just what you just said was very boring. You just led them all out of here. <laughs> I actually find this stuff quite interesting. Um, our guest is uh, Professor Dale B. Martin. He's recently retired from Yale, but he grew up in Texas. So he's got this like kind of 50 percent Southern you know drawl. You said that, but you said, but he grew up in Texas as if. People who he teach had no, at Yale. Yeah. As if he had no right to be anywhere near Yale because he was. Yeah. I'm going to call you out on that. Fair Dan. enough. Fair enough. He is the author of many books, including Sex and the Single Savior and Biblical Truths, both of which I have read this Sorry, year. Sex and the Single Savior? As in issues of sexuality and then Jesus was single. I love it. Ooh, it's a collection of essays. It's fantastic. Really good. Uh, I found his work really helpful. But here, we'll, we'll dive in. I did the interview with Dale. and As then, you do? As I since do. Since I don't do these things. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then Ellen and I will be chatting about what we hear as we go along. So here, here's Dale. At the earliest point in your life that you were thinking about hell, right? So other than just simply receiving, what did you think hell was and why did you think it? I don't remember a time in my life when I wasn't questioning what I was hearing in church. In general or specifically about hell? In general. I think what really prompted me more were questions that were peculiar to my denomination. Dancing, if you dance, you'll go to hell. You were raised Church of Christ in Texas, church right? Of Christ. So no, Texas. no dancing, no music, musical instruments. No, no right? uh, alcoholic beverages, no dancing. And I just thought that doesn't... I remember, I remember at a very young age saying to a preacher in my church, well... Jesus turned water into wine and then served it. And they would say things like, oh, well, in the Bible, that's non-alcoholic wine. Yeah, which just is, is like the most obvious kind of mental gymnastics because the whole point of the wine is that it's good wine because the guy says, usually people save the bad wine for when everybody is drunk, but yeah, you didn't. And, if it's not and, alcoholic wine, how could that be the case? And I, I don't know how, how old I was, but it, I, would, I, I was pretty young when I said, there's a word for non-alcoholic wine. It's called grape juice. <laughs> yeah, right. And don't let not, it ferment. And that's not what the text says. See, I would always go back to the text. Right. And I would say, it doesn't say grape juice. It says wine. And so what you're saying to me is not true. calling him a nerd huh he has been a nerd since he walked out of the womb it sounds like <laughs> yeah well i mean he was a new testament not that i don't scholar. appreciate that but i certainly he's do. a new testament scholar so ellen there is one recurring segment for these while you were evangelizing episodes that i have prepared okay it's called in the year 2000 oh my god Uh, if anyone is too young or wasn't watching cable in 1997, that is from the Conan O'Brien show, the original one, not the new TBS one. 
That was not from 1997. 97. That's why it was funny. It was like only two or three years in the future. And then they did these insane. I feel like yeah. that was five years ago. No, it was 20 years What's ago. What's happening? Yeah, I can't answer that. So this this segment is supposed to help us by picking a time. We happen to choose the year 2000 because of the Conan joke. But like, what was the consensus view? I want to sort of give us a window into each side here. There are these parallel streams of Christianity in America operating side by side. Around the year 2000, what was the consensus view among evangelicals? And what was the consensus view among liberal mainline Protestants? I'm going to start by giving the evangelical answer. Ellen, feel free to add anything or ask for clarity. And then we'll hear Dale answer for the mainliners. In the year 2000... I'm already like loving how many times I'm going to say that phrase this season. In the year 2000, it's easy to say that the mainstream view as now in the evangelical world is that hell is definitely a real place that exists or will exist. It's a spiritual place where sins are punished. Yeah, sure. Most evangelicals have tended to believe in what is called eternal conscious torment. The idea that oh, the, the gnashing of teeth, gnashing of teeth. The idea that the unsaved spend eternity in hell moment after moment, as it were, consciously being tormented for all time. That's the kind of standard view. It always was. I, I'm sure it is today as well. Now, this is not the only understanding of hell within evangelicalism, but it's the one that most evangelicals have been raised to believe in. I think it was certainly the consensus view in the year 2000. Some evangelicals break from this and they affirm universal salvation or universalism. We've talked about that a little bit, Ellen, mostly at parties, I think. <laughs> the idea that eventually all people will be saved by Christ's work, his atonement. Other people believe in annihilationism, which is the idea that basically if someone is completely separate from God, they would cease to exist. So instead of going to hell, people cease to exist and people who are saved continue to exist in communion with God. If you're separated from God, there's nothing left to keep you existing. That's kind of the idea. And I find that really interesting. It's an interesting view, but it's not the consensus. So we're going to leave that behind and we're going to stick with eternal conscious torment. And let's get back to Dale and ask him what people were thinking. So around the year 2000, Dr. Martin, what was like a kind of a consensus view or at least what were sort of you and your colleagues sort of thinking and talking about when it came to hell in the liberal mainline tradition? I think most people didn't think about it. I think that it was just one of those things that people said, well, that's part of the tradition, but we don't have to have an opinion about it. I think mainline liberalism in Christianity has often taken a, a kind of position that we don't have to answer every question. In fact, one of the things that I've learned over my journey in Christianity, having grown up as a fundamentalist, is that you don't have to have an answer to everything. In fact, the very idea that you have to have an answer to everything is a part of fundamentalism. It's not a part of liberalism. Yeah, that's interesting. That is both that <laughs> having grown up evangelical, that answer is both very comforting and incredibly uh, fear-inducing. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Anxiety-producing. And, and, and you know, when you're a conservative, you kind of think, okay, if I have a wrong opinion, I'm going to go to hell. Yeah, I'm on the hook for that, right? And 
once you kind of come to a point where you just believe, I can't live that kind of faith at all, if that's what I have to believe, then you just move beyond that. I think that most people like me gave up even in the year 2000 or before in believing that we had to have an opinion of hell. So when I've talked about hell in church groups, I've said, I believe that I do have a belief in hell in a sense, but I don't have a belief in hell as a physical place. And of course, a lot of people, they, that throws them. Well, of course, nobody believes in hell as a physical place, but that's exactly what everybody before the modern period believed. They believe that hell is a physical place below our feet. And if you don't believe that, then you're not believing like Jesus or Paul or anybody else may have believed in hell. You're believing in hell in a modern sense of its a spiritual existence. Yeah, that's interesting. People who affirm hell today as some sort of spiritual existence want to say, I believe in it, and so did Jesus and Paul, but they actually believe in it differently than, well, may, depending on what you think about the knowledge that Jesus would have had, certainly they believe in it differently than Paul believed in it. If Absolutely. That, if they mean and, that and spiritual thing. If they don't believe that hell is an actual physical location in the cosmos that you could go to with a spaceship or a drill in the middle of the earth, then you don't believe in hell in the way that any pre-modern person believed in it, really. So in a bit, I'm going to ask you your view on hell and, and sort of your argument for that. But before I get there, I have a question that I think is interesting, which is, let's say that in 2000, the consensus mainline liberal view is we're not even thinking about hell. In, in a sense, we've sort of moved past that either because it seems crazy or because it just seems beyond our ken or something. And then the evangelical view, which is no, hell has to exist because it is where justice is performed. It is where justice is meted out by God. And there, there may be other things, but I think that's probably the, the, the generous argument from the evangelical side. My question for you is, are these two views actually mutually exclusive or no, could someone no. hold both? No. In fact, I think, I think most progressives like me do hold both. Hmm. We just say that when we say we don't believe in hell – what we mean is we don't believe that God intentionally, the loving God that we worship and serve, intentionally created a physical place or even a spiritual place of eternal pain and suffering that God would assign people to and just keep it running forever and ever and ever and ever. When people reject the traditional, some of the traditional means of hell, they're not rejecting it on a scientific basis or on physicalist basis. They're rejecting it because they think, I cannot believe in a loving God who would create and maintain this thing. Right. It was like, have you decided to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And if you haven't decided that, you are automatically going to hell no matter what. And you just finally come around to saying, do I believe in a loving God or do I believe in that? Yeah, something I would uh, really encourage people to watch if they haven't is the Netflix show Black Mirror the last episode of season four, there is, without giving too much away, let's just say in that show's kind of technological way, there is, they create a, a scenario where a person who has been convicted of murder is able to be like digitally uploaded and sort of electrocuted over and over and over again for his purported crime. Right. And you you watch it and you you get fatigued as a yeah. viewer just thinking, 
if this is what it's like, like if it's something like this, it's just, there's gotta be some point at which you stop electrocuting the conscious being. You, you just, you, you've paid it at some point. Yes. yes. There, there's just kind of a very strong moral intuition that that's not the way that a loving God would mete out justice. Well, and I think Roman Catholics, you know, they, they've kind of tried to get at this better than Protestants with purgatory, kind of a temporary purification process that may in itself be painful, right? but it's not forever. And it leads to salvation rather than leads to eternal pain and suffering. The Protestant reformers were perfectly right, I think, to say, well, this doctrine of purgatory is a later invention. And so they reject it. But I've never been the kind of Christian who believed that we could only accept Christian doctrines that were present in the first century. Yeah. Well, that's a, that is a whole other conversation that is fascinating, but that we don't have time to have today. What do you say to someone? So maybe just address this more head on, because you, you have kind of talked about this, but a, a perfectly reasonable answer, especially in the evangelical world, is Jesus seemed to believe in a final judgment. And what they might mean by that is, I take... Matthew's account of Jesus's sayings to be more or less exact. Uh, Historical, yeah. Yeah. Jesus believed in that, and therefore I am not free. And, and I, you know, not in a way that people want to be jerks, but I'm not free to disbelieve in that. How do you respond? Well, well, I, I just basically respond as a biblical scholar. I, I go right back to the text. Not all of the New Testament is fascinated with eternal punishment and gnashing of teeth, but the Gospel of Matthew certainly is. All these parables end with people being thrown into eternal damnation and burning and gnashing of teeth. Yeah. And if that's the reason you believe it, I think that's a bad reason. I've regularly used texts from the New Testament itself, which has Jesus saying things that seem even heretical by Christian standards. When Jesus is asked, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Well, wait a minute. Taken literally, that's Jesus saying he's not God. Right. Now, you cannot believe that as an Orthodox Christian. So how do you get around these texts? And I just try to lead people into saying, you know, texts don't interpret themselves. You have to interpret them. And there is no such thing as a literal meaning of a text that gives you what you have to believe. You have to interpret them. Paul, in Paul's letters, he regularly, and in Acts, the writer of Acts, they regularly sound like that Jesus only became God at his resurrection. In Romans 1, Paul says he was the seed of David according to the flesh. He was designated son of God at his resurrection. Well, that's not orthodox. And yet it's right there in the text. If you read that text in the most literal kind of way you can. So as Christians, we're always forced to interpret texts. And what I try to do is lead people into the very complicated process of what it means to be a believing Christian and interpret the Bible. It's not simple. And people should stop talking as if it's simple. That's what drove me out of fundamentalism, is even when I was 15 years old, I would hear people say stuff in my church, and I'd go actually to the text and I would say, that's not what the text says. Fortunately, I was a smart enough kid, and I had a flexible enough mind, and also I had a very supportive family. My, I would go to my parents and say, what do you, you know, what this preacher in church today said, blah, blah, blah. 
the Baptists are all going to hell because they play pianos in their church services. Yeah. And they'd say, you really don't have to believe everything you hear in that church. I think that when you, you called him a bit of a nerd, I think that I was think an understatement. you called him that? I think you said he came out of the I, womb a nerd? Yeah. I I picture him sticking his, pointing his finger to the sky and saying, to the text. Okay. But, okay. But there's a. That's <laughs> what you but love. To this. You love this guy. I think that he, and I don't think he would disagree with this. It might be that his fundamentalist background made, made him, him into a textual nerd. Yeah. Because. I just love the idea of a kid saying, actually. <laughs> actually, the text. <laughs> yeah. I love that too. But think about it. Fundamentalist Christianity says you read the Bible in its plain sense on the face of it. And that is the word of God. And so he is reading it. He's old enough to understand its plain meaning. And he says, it doesn't say that. So obviously you guys are doing something else besides the thing that you say Uh is your reason is your whole mode of finding truth. So I think that there, yes, it is funny that he keeps going to the text, but like, it's because that is the interpretive lens he has, is told that his church is founded on. And then he's just like, if I can be 14 and disprove that, yeah. then there's a problem here, right? Or at least not just disprove it, but prove that there are other lenses. Di- yeah, disprove that that's the only lens, basically. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, there was a lot in there. Did you? What else stood out to you? Just the whole concept of hell being a physical place. Interesting, right? It's very familiar to me because we grew up very similarly and the idea of this being pre 2000 and the fact that maybe a lot of people don't believe that now i I wonder Mm. what shifted because when i was growing up it was very much a physical place and i wondered about how the universe didn't really have a north and south and west and east so i was confused about how that worked like Mm. how far down was hell how old were you when you were thinking about Northwest? Well, like I've said, like I've said before, I didn't know that dinosaurs were real, so you, I don't so want, you were really very, want to so say. So this segment really is for you, Ellen. You were I guess. totally sheltered from this stuff. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, but I didn't get to the idea of a loving God. Would He create and maintain something? I didn't get that un, yeah. that until like my mid twenties. Yeah, no, I think my I didn't point wrap is my that, mind around that. My point is that like. When evangelicals reach a certain age, a lot of evangelicals, then they start asking these questions. And then are there answers for them within the evangelical world? I think there are some evangelical scholars who have thought seriously about this. But by and large, it has been a community almost defined by the fact that it doesn't do serious scholarship. I mean, it it is it is wary of serious scholarship. It's wary of interacting with philosophy. And so... Well, I wonder if yeah. if most of the people that are really getting to like tackling the hell topic are people that came from hearing maybe a misleading idea of hell or who knows what misleading means or, or what something counts that, like does Dante yeah. count as misleading? Because I think that the hell I was raised with was basically the hell of Dante's Inferno. Yeah, but what I mean is people that weren't raised in the evangelical church in right. the you know, 80s and 90s like we were, probably don't really care if hell is real or not. Well, that's right. To his answer, his answer was, I don't think anybody was thinking about it yeah, in the year nobody, 2000. nobody cares. I'll Except what you, I was you thinking. and I were terrified. <laughs> yes. I'll tell you what was happening in my life in the year 2000. You were like, I'm not going to see, see a naked woman yeah. and I am going to hell. 
Yeah. And what afraid. can I do to avoid that? I still worry Both about things. like getting all these theological changes and like, I'm, I really think I'm trying to love God and pray mm-hmm. and, and like connect with him and learn more. And I still worry that I'm going to hell. Like yeah. All what, the time. If, what am I, what if I'm not doing enough? Yeah. What, what if, if I, yeah. what if I made some crucial rational error, 10 steps back. I didn't see it. And all of this is in the opposite know. direction. There's no you're way gonna, to know. Your teeth are going to be gnashed like history. Okay. Literally. What's that, that movie? That made me, that made me afraid to hear you say that. American history X. It's going to be like that over Curb and over and over, over for the rest of your life. Jeez. So there's something here uh, that this I think like, you're going to Sorry, love. I just had a memory. Did your church ever do the uh, Halloween? Like scare house yeah. or fright house yeah. or like to scare people from hell? It was like all hell. I don't know if we did one. I, I went to one and I've seen a lot of like TV segments about it. Oh. But we didn't host our we own. We had those. It was like, oh, this did? is what's going to happen. And you would go into the basement of the church. And people from around the community would come. Would come in, these yeah. poor people. Like some some girl has an abortion and then yeah. ends up in hell, and she's alone yeah. in this bloody medical yeah. room. And it's like, okay, well, what world is this in? Because no girl would be alone in a medical or just like bleeding out everywhere, like walking around the room. I mean, there, we're not going to probably get into it today, but there is a really legitimate question of: Can you love God if the love is motivated by fear. Like, is that possible? Well, if you, if you looked at that as a human relationship, could you love someone if you were out of fear? I mean, that's like I a, don't think so. an abuser yeah, relationship. I don't, think you, can. I don't oh. think you can. So did I it, just help you answer that? Well, obviously I lean toward the answer that no, you can't, but it's a complicated question. I mean, there are, there are questions about like how sinful are we? Like, are, are we so sinful that, we sort of need to be woken up. But I do like your question of like, well, think about your wife. Think about someone in your life. Could you love them out of fear? You certainly can't. That's not love. It's it's right. it's literally the opposite. If I say, That's God, Stockholm I love you syndrome. so that I don't go to hell. Yeah. There's no love in that. There's nothing loving no. about that. There's no really no even no choice. If I was certain that all I had to do to avoid eternal hell was to say the sinner's prayer, it is the most rational, coldly rational thing I could ever do is to say the sinner's prayer. There's no reason not to, but that's not faith. That's not trust. I'm not trusting anything except the word of the person who told me, if you do this, you won't go to hell. Yeah. I'm trusting them. I'm not trusting yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. Right. So here's something that I think you're going to like though, Ellen, because this harkens back to our conversation with uh, Alan. Yeah. Dale, despite being a massive nerd, as you say, which by the way, implicates me, but I'll take it. He does not think that everybody needs to be as into this stuff as he is or as I am. He sees a lot of people's engagement with their faith to be a more regular thing, day to day, less tortured, less theological. But he doesn't think that that's a problem. Here's my conversation with Dale. For people who don't need to think theologically, they just go through the actions. They just go to church. They take their kids to Sunday school. They enroll their kids in youth groups and that kind of stuff because they believe that, you know, religion is somehow kind of important for family life or something like that. And I have so many friends who did not get active in the church at all until they had kids. Right. And so until they had kids, they just kind of stayed at home and, you know, watched CBS in the morning. 
But then they have kids and they start church shopping. And it's because they feel like there's something for their kids they want. I think sometimes with a lot of people, that sometimes sucks them back into the church. Right. They kind of start seeing, oh, wow, there's something here that's value for me too and not just for my kids. Yeah, like the the experience they have with their children. Most parents, healthy parents, have an experience of sort of seeing their children as infinitely valuable or near infinitely valuable and just so beautifully constructed and all of this stuff. They come to church and they go, oh, this this community has a theological explanation for my experience of the beauty and joy and value of my children. Well, if they are theologically oriented, you know, so my sure. experience is that there's a whole lot of people, maybe even the majority, I don't know, who don't even choose to think theologically. They just do it. And when I wrote my book, Biblical Truths, I pointed out in the very introduction that this book was probably not for everyone. It was really for those people who had questions about why they believed and why should they believe it. But I admitted that there were a whole lot of people in the world, Christians in the world, who they just don't feel the need to question why they believe or what should they believe. They just do it. I really do believe that not everyone needs the kind of thing that I know I need, which is thinking theologically. Yeah, that's the kind of thing I need too. And I I think about this all the time, even just the difference between my wife and I, how much more of this stuff I need than she needs in order to make sense of my religious experience and my religious practice. I think when most people would say something like, they don't think about it, they just show up and they do it, they mean that negatively. So you might imagine Sam Harris or some other prominent atheist speaker or thinker saying, people, they don't even believe this stuff. They just show up. They're just socialized to do this. And therefore, we should excise this from our community because it's meaningless. But that's not how you're saying it, is it? No, it's not. And it's because I think that people like Sam Harris and a lot of evangelicals and conservative atheists, (laughs) and I mean, I think there are a lot of atheists who are conservatively atheists who are fundamentalists when it comes to atheism. They're both working with the knowledge of faith that we get from modern Protestantism, which is that faith is not a way of being in the world, which is the way medieval people thought about faith. Faith is something you, a belief you ascribe to, and you have to kind of believe it in the same way you believe, oh, it's raining outside today. And if you can't ascribe to a statement or a practice that way, then that means you shouldn't believe it. You shouldn't have faith. But I think a lot of people like me have come to believe that faith is not an ascription of knowledge to a propositional statement of reality. Right. It's a way of being. And so uh, I think a lot of people are perfectly comfortable with that. They just say, well, my faith is living out a very fundamental belief that there is meaning in the world, and I believe that we need to enact our lives in love. And I don't have to prove that to anybody. I don't even have to prove it to me. What I do is I just keep living that way. So I wanted to ask you, what's the argument for the consensus view of hell around 2000, which your answer is people weren't really thinking about it. But so that's, it's really, there's an argument behind the argument. And so the argument behind that argument is, what is the argument for the fact or the the contention that a modern Christian does not have to have a view on all of these complicated things that seem to be changing over time 
I mean, it's in the creed, right? He descended into hell and rose again on the third day. That's in the Nicene Creed. It, you you could imagine someone saying, yeah, you need to, if you're thinking about this, you really need to have that nailed down. What is the argument that you don't need to have that nailed down? Well, I think you have to have both and. I think you need to be able as a thinking Christian to say why I do confess that. And that may come first. And then you can back off and say, now this is why I don't believe it in certain other senses. Hmm. And the part of why I do confess it is I used to make the joke that I'm a left-wing political person. And I used to say, well, of course I believe in hell because if Ronald Reagan is not going to hell, there is no justice in the universe. You know, this kind of thing. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there are certain people who live out their lives in perfect peace and happiness, and yet they do terrible things to other people. Now, if you don't believe that we can say that these people will suffer some kind of punishment for this, then you're basically saying that the universe is not a just place in the end. Right. I think this is a big part of the evangelical argument yes. is, is the justice of the universe. There needs to yes. be some reckoning of wrongs. That, that's right. And so this is why all, all of my theology is based on the idea that everything you say about God or truth or anything really or mathematics is both true and false. Mm. And what it means to be a theologically aware Christian is to be able to articulate how is it true and how is it false. Right. For example, when we say Jesus descended into hell in the Apostles' Creed, the way I've talked about that in the past is saying, that says to me that there's no place in the universe that any of us can be that the presence of Christ is not there. Yeah. That there's no place in the universe you need to be afraid of, that you will be destitute from God. And that's not such a crazy interpretation, because if you think about probably how a pre-modern person thought of heaven, celestial bodies, hell, below, maybe another place like Abraham's bosom or Sheol or something. If you think about all that stuff, to say Jesus descended into hell is is kind of saying Jesus goes to the depths. That well, is really where, what it's saying. That's where we get it from. I, right. what is, it, it, is that from Second Peter, I think? Or? I'm a New Testament scholar. Hey, you're scholar. the New I Testament be, scholar, not I me. should know this, but the idea that Jesus went to hell to preach to the people who were dead, that's from the New Testament. Hmm. The creed picks it up from the Bible. And in the Bible, the function of it is to say Jesus descends into hell in order to save people. And that's part of what I think is going on in the Apostles' Creed. That's part of the whole tradition of the saying. I've started doing something totally new with the patrons, people who support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash depolarize. For $3 a month or more, you get two bonus interviews per month that are not on the Depolarize feed. They're not on the Reconstruct feed. They're not on anywhere else that I release podcasts. These are for you guys only. I'm so grateful for the support, and I wanted to not only give supporters some extra content that they could have alone, but I also like this as a platform to talk to people about stuff that isn't maybe quite necessarily related to depolarize or whatever, but really just anyone I know that I find really interesting. We can chat about anything. There's a lot of theology, there's politics, there's psychology, there's gender questions. Uh, that's just what I've done so far. So this week, 
Releasing today, the same day as this episode, is the second part of my conversation with Greg Tomlin, who works on The Michael Medved Show. He's a producer on one of the top conservative talk radio shows in America. He's a buddy of mine, but I love talking with him because he really does come from the other side of the aisle. Here are a couple clips from our conversation to get you a little interested. He values loyalty more than anything, and loyalty is pretty amoral. Um, (laughs) The guy has no moral fiber to speak of as, as far as looking at his life's record. I mean, this goes back decades. And a bunch of names like Papadopoulos and Comey and Manafort and, I don't know, Dan, you and I are around the news a lot. Can we keep track of all these major players in this? I personally can't, and I'm in conservative talk radio, and it makes my head spin um, because this is the kind of stuff that keeps Putin in power. And I'm not saying Trump is Putin. What I'm saying is Putin thrives on the public being misinformed, people being confused, And people assuming, yeah, you know, everybody's lying to us. Everybody's sort of corrupt, whatever. That's the way it's going to be. No, that's not the way it should be in America. And we used to not believe that about this country. We used to believe what we see is what we get, or at least we should expect that of our leaders. And it troubles me that even if Trump fires Mueller uh, or if Mueller releases his findings, so much damage will have been done leading up to that point that the findings are going to be damned if you do, damned if you don't. And I was inculcated in such a way where ideas of limited government, personal responsibility, constitutional rights, uh, free markets, uh, equal opportunity, e pluribus unum, and Pax Americana were like the pillars of good uh, policy and ideology to make America truly flourish. And I will grant you that sometimes conservatives pull too far in this direction. But the whole idea of personal responsibility, um, the left generally views that phrase with suspicion and will not attribute the outcome of someone's life to their personal decisions, more like systems or the powers that be holding a person down so that person could not achieve their full potential. Two weeks ago, we had part one with Greg Tomlin. Two weeks before that, Ben Bishop and I talked about what counts as Christian orthodoxy, what kinds of things do we need to have to call it Christianity, without which it's something else, and does that even matter? The good news is, once you sign up for our Patreon, you have access to all of those conversations, not just the ones that were released since you signed up. So if you're interested in this, go to patreon.com slash depolarize that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n or go to depolarizepodcast.com and click the button that says become a patron thank you guys so much there's a, a collect from the book of common prayer i often say when i'm sitting in my porch in the morning to try to damp down any anxiety that may have built up in the in the night and it goes oh god who art the author of peace and lover of concord, in knowledge of whom standeth our eternal life, whose service is perfect freedom. Defend us in all the assaults of our enemies, that we, truly trusting in thy defense, 
may not fear the power of any adversaries through the might of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And to you, that just, that language expresses the kind of God that you believe in and worship. Yeah. And it also does not hide the fact that we have enemies. Right. That's what I like about it is that even if we don't want to think about our fellow human beings as being explicitly our enemies, although they sometimes are, we can still say we have adversaries that we fear in the universe, whether that's depression, demons, evil angels, anxieties, whatever it is. But that prayer says to me that we don't have to fear them. And that really does seem to go along with what Paul is getting at when he says our, you know, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We, our goal is not to defeat other human beings who are our enemies. And right. he's pulling from Christ there, you know, uh, love your enemies. He's saying it, they're against powers and principalities. And in that for him, it would have been spiritual warfare. It also would have been the Roman Empire. I think Paul includes all of that. Some, some scholars try to decide – is Paul talking simply about the Roman Empire or human forces, or is he talking about angels and demons? And I believe he's talking about both. Yeah. Because I believe as an apocalyptic Jew, he could not but believe that behind the evil Roman emperor was some super powerful angel who was tweaking him like a marionette puppet. And, you know, so we hear language like that, some of us who live in 2018, and we think, I uh, come on, I can't get behind that. But but there's other ways of phrasing that, right? You think about what was behind Hitler. Well, yeah. not just his own personal will, but like the fact that he was slighted as a kid, and perhaps the way he was raised, and the kind of racial resentment that ha- that he grew up around. You know, it's all these things that are beyond just one person's choices. They are. They are sort of society-wide waves of sin and evil and and darkness, or even you know mental illness. Right? You mentioned depression exactly. and anxiety. Yeah. I, I struggle with anxiety. I have generalized anxiety disorder. My anxiety is not just one subset of me, right? Like anxiety is a condition which accurately describes some part of my experience, but it's also something that other people experience such that yeah. we can call it anxiety. It is its own thing, you might say, with its and own properties. One of, that's one of our enemies. Right. Oh, I agree. Man, amen. So I believe in false myths and true myths. So I believe mythology is real. Hmm. And what we need to do is figure out what are the myths we should hold on to and what are the myths we should get rid of and let go. But the idea that there are principalities and powers that are our enemies in the universe, I recognize it not as a physical reality. I don't, I don't believe physically in demons or even evil angels, which I believe Paul believed in, as physical realities. And this is something sometimes people say, oh, well, if they're angels, they're spiritual, they're not physical. Well, no, 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 no. The only non-created thing in the universe is God. Everything else in the universe is created which means it is part of the universe, which means it is physical in some sense. And you think that's what Paul would have meant, or this is how you think of it now? No, Paul, I've argued many times, nobody in the ancient world, not just Paul, but nobody in the ancient world believed that there was a realm of the supernatural. Mm. For them, it was all one, one fabric. All one universe. In fact, uh, if you believed in God at all, or gods at all, in the first century, and I think this is true for Greeks, Romans, Jews, Paul, Christians, anybody, 
you believe that those gods were part of the universe. If you do believe that angels and demons exist, you must believe they are created members of our universe. That is, they're not supernatural, they're natural. Now, I don't believe they are. I don't believe in them. I don't believe they exist. But I believe that as myths, they're perfectly usable. And they're true. It's true. Like they, they express true things about the world. Exactly. They're, they are true myths. And that's kind of, that's kind of the way – to go, go back to hell, that's kind of the way I say I believe that hell is both a true myth and a false myth. And you need to be sure which one you're talking about it with. My friend Chris Hoke says, it never made sense to me that it was good news that I could accept Jesus as my Savior so that I could skip – an eternity of torture and instead hang out with the torturer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's, that's not a bad way of putting it. And of course, people always get around it by saying, well, God is not the cause of, God is not the cause of the torture. But, but no, no, no. You either say God is all powerful and God is in charge of the universe or you don't. So thinking about hell, what's your view today? And what is your argument for that view? My view is that we need to entertain the idea that some people experience an absence of meaning that puts them in severe misery, and that's torturing. And that happens on Earth, surely, and it might happen as well after Earth or in some other sphere. it, It certainly happens on Earth because it happens with people all around us. There are people in institutions all around us who are in hell right now, and that's a reality. So we don't want to deny that reality. But the idea that there's no redemption for them, either in this life or beyond, that's what we have to reject. Oh, that's that's an interesting way of putting it, yeah. And and why do you think that's true? Like, I, I imagine you this is an argument from God's character or something like that? Yes, it's because it, you cannot believe that God is love and not believe that. problem with the idea that demons don't demons, exist physically yeah okay what do you what's your problem he maybe hasn't experienced it okay. because people who experience it i would submit would feel differently sure yep although there might be a middle position right so you might be imagining that when he says i don't believe that they exist as like physical beings or yeah. dark matter or dark energy or something like that. We think, Oh, that means like there's nothing going on, but he is saying there are forces. There are principalities. There are things that gain momentum that are not just individuals choices. And those yeah, have but power. I'm talking about like a physical experience. You could, you could experience those things physically. It, it, you certainly would experience them physically. Seeing with like seeing. I don't know that that, that would be that's what that I'm might be about, outside. If you if you think that you have seen I an have, entity with horns or something, well, I don't that's know. Why that's why I that's why I it was quick to point that out because I've had one experience. I was I was younger, but ever since that experience, I was probably maybe twelve, thirteen. I now believe with my whole heart that it 
is real. Now, do I believe that they're made up of atoms? Right. You know what? I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Well, so to what, me. Do you, what did you what did you when you say see, what do you mean? And what did you see? OK, so there was I'm a, not trying to disprove you. I'm just curious. No, it's just the only experience I've ever had. And it shook me to my core. There was a period of time where I was um, experienced. I, I believe that Satan usually a kind of attacks or clings onto someone when he feels like he's about to lose somebody. Okay. When he's going to lose ground. I don't know why I feel that way. It's just something I feel. Someone told you it and see. So yeah, yeah, probably. Made sense. Or it makes sense. It made sense with your experience. Sure. And I was going through a period where I was getting really into the idea of like angels and the idea of the afterlife. And I was studying a lot and I was doing Bible studies and I think I was reading Frank Peretti. <laughs> You don't think that this may have had some effect on whatever your well, experience was about to be? Um, so one night... If I can just play skeptic Sherlock Holmes yeah, please, here. Please, yeah. please do. I mean, I have... I get it. I, I'm yeah. I'm a realist. I get it. One night, I had opened my eyes. And you know when you wake up and you, either, you know you're awake? Mm-hmm. I had had that feeling. I opened my eyes and I saw for just a... For, it was like a blip. It was this black cloaked character sort of like hovering above me. But it was a blip and I closed my eyes again. I kind of rolled over and I thought, you know, bad dream. Maybe it's a fever dream. Maybe I'm getting sick, something like that. Well, then the following night and uh, a side note to this, one of our family friends had come over to work, uh, remodel our kitchen. His name was Todd. It still is Todd. He's alive. He's not dead. Nice guy. Totally alive. Nor has Todd changed his name. (laughs) Yeah. And so he was staying in the room right next to mine in our house. And in the middle of the night, I woke up and I felt a heaviness. I felt like someone had dropped like a, a quilt on me. I felt, I've I've heard stories like this. People feel like a weight on their chest. Yeah. And that woke me up and it wasn't the sleep paralysis because I've experienced that before. It was not that at all. Mm -hmm. I, I could move, but I was, I was paralyzed in fear. Mm -hmm. I definitely could move. Yeah. I opened my eyes and I saw it was the same shape. It was the same thick black cloaked creature. It was, it was as dark. I've never seen anything darker in my whole life. It was the blackest of black. It was matter. And it was hovering above me, maybe about a foot, foot and a half. And it had green eyes. And I kind of crawled out from underneath it and I screamed and I ran out of my room and at that very time, Todd had gotten up and ran in to, he looked in my room, then he came back, came out to see if I was okay. And he said that he woke up because he heard a man's voice in my room saying, get out, get out. So hmm. that's an experience. Yeah, that's weird. That was real. Sure. And it involved me and another human person. Yeah. So when I hear people saying like, well, I don't believe demons are real. Right, it's right. like, okay, but... I experienced something. Now, I don't know what it means. Sure. I believe that I was in a in a place where I was really like seeking the kingdom of God. And I mean, I don't know what that really means. Yeah. It, maybe it was just a coincidence, but it wasn't a dream. It was a real thing. And this guy that was staying in our house is a God-fearing man that woke up and heard a man's voice in my room. I mean, yeah. it was a very real experience for me. Well, so I, of so course, I'm go. not going to tell you that that didn't happen or anything like that, or you imagined it. <laughs> okay. Right. I'll just say a couple things. Number one, 
you you're saying it was matter, but do you think it was atoms or do you have a sense that it was something well, else? Just it was just like a thickness. It was definitely my perception. I have no idea. I didn't touch it. Right. So it's possible that like Okay, but if it so, was a dream of mine, why did he in the next room hear? No, I'm not saying person's... it was a dream. I'm not saying it was a dream. Here's a couple things. Let's assume that it was a real thing that you and Todd both experienced and that there was something that caused both of your experiences that okay. is an entity of some sort. Okay. First of all, that doesn't mean that hell exists as eternal sure. conscious torment. Sure. Right? So to get back to the episode. But if there is a right. hell, that's where this thing is. Sure, but now we're getting into like popular conceptions of things. There's not, you know what I mean? Like the the second thing I would say is it is possible that like Dale and I talked about like principalities and powers. I mean, it, it is silly to say that these things are not experienced physically. So when Hitler is full of hatred of the Jews, that is a chemical experience, sure. right? He experiences that in his brain, in his body. It's not that this stuff has no physical counterpart it's possible though also that like god would be like hey i want you to i want you to experience this or maybe there's a force coming and god's like maybe this i'm I'm conjecture here but it's possible that dale could be right and that you and todd needed to experience something that would strengthen your faith and god had you experience it i don't know i mean that might not but as a realist yeah I can't get over it. If it had just been my experience, I could yeah, have chalked it, it up by guy. now. But yeah. the fact that he heard a voice still to this day. Yeah. That's mysterious. It fucks me. Yeah. Although I will say, I mean, this was how many, 20 years ago. Yeah. Recently, him and his family came up for their visit. And I said, Todd, I have to talk to you about something. This yeah. is very weird. But, you know, I told him my experience because, you know, I was. 13, 14. I like yeah. didn't want to talk to this older guy about it. It was kind of strange and scary yeah. for me. And I told him the whole story and he looked at me and he said, Ellen, I'm so sorry. I don't remember. <laughs> okay. So we are then now let's add one more layer. We're going through your memory of what he told you at the time and he doesn't remember it. The, how he thought, on earth would I make that up? No, but not make just, it up. It, but it wasn't any, all this changes. It, I don't think it was a real revelation for him to experience. You think he just his faith in heard demon voices on the regs? Maybe. And so he just I didn't mean, think anything of it. He was maybe. really into Maranatha, so. Well, maybe. Okay. Well, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> we've got one last bit with Dale Martin, but before we hear that, I kind of want to set the scene, and I don't think that he would mind this. He was tearing up. At a few points, he was tearing up when he you was talking about. You love it when people get emotional when I you mean, talk to them. It means something to me. Like he's just doing a podcast interview. I can tell that he really means this stuff. Like he was tearing up about talking about doing that collect from the Book of Common Prayer in like fighting his own anxiety. Maybe you know? at the end of this season, I'll cry for you a little bit. I, uh, you're not going to do that. You're a you're a freaking steel fortress. No, I um, cried at MasterChef three times yesterday, yeah, one episode. It's a safe place to cry. Here is not. Uh, also, like something about the Skype thing, like you can't you can't hear when he's getting emotional, but he he did get emotional a couple times, and I I thought it was really powerful. And I don't know, this is kind of silly, but I guess I used to think of liberal Christians as like cold and calmly rational. Yeah, they're the they're the hippies. They the are the hippies. most compassionate right. hippies of all You're time. You're right. You're right. You're right. So 
with that in mind, here's our last chunk with Dale Martin. Let me tell you about a conversation I had with my father maybe 15 years ago. It was at least 10 years ago. He was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And he went through surgery, and they thought they got it all. And then about six months later, maybe a year later, uh, I got a phone call and from one of my siblings and said that they the cancer recurred, but now it recurred in, a, in his bones. Well, back then, cancer occurring in your bone was pretty much considered a death sentence. And so I called him up and I said, Dad, do you... Are you afraid to die? And he said, no, not at all. I've had a great life. I've loved my life. I'm not afraid to die. Now, remember, my dad's still going to the same fundamentalist kind of church that I was raised in. He's still, he's the song leader. He stands up and waves his hand and uses his pitch pipe because we don't have pianos. And he leads the singing for all the hymns. And he's there every Sunday and every Wednesday night, usually. And I said, Dad, do you believe there's anything on the other side? And he said, oh, no, not probably. Probably not. No, no, probably not. I don't know. Who cares? And he said, I kind of pressed him a bit. And he said, look, I don't believe there's any pain on the other side. I don't believe there's suffering. And I believe if there's anything, it's just rest. Because that what for him, that's what believing in God meant. Rest in peace. I just thought it was amazing that he, as a still in a fundamentalist church, didn't feel the need to believe not only in hell, he didn't feel the need to believe in heaven in any kind of consciousness sense because he just trusted God. I cannot imagine. At 35 years old, my current age, getting to a place where I could say what your dad said. Right now, I am terrified of the void. I'm terrified of not existing. Perhaps there's some ego involved in that. <laughs> uh, See, I'm more like I'm more like my dad. I'm. If someone told me I was going to die tomorrow, yeah, it would not bother me at all. Huh. Those who feel more like me, maybe we can. We can hope that God's grace will take us somewhere like that, to a place like that. Well, I do think it is grace. I mean, I just think it is. I mean, I think it is. I think it comes about because there was a time in my life where I thought death would be, you know, something to be feared. But I mean, I don't know. I I really do believe it's like the liturgy. You go to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, or maybe morning prayer and evening prayer, and you say these prayers. Over and over and over and over again. And it's a discipline. It makes your life. It trains you. That's the meaning of discipline is education. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, that will all train me <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to something uh, more at peace with my existence or lack of existence, more like you or your dad. I do think that for me, it, a lot of my angst around the afterlife does feel anxious. It feels related to my issues with anxiety, which 
by now are, are well documented in my own yeah. mind. I mean, I'm certainly aware of them. So we'll see if there's growth in that area. But Dr. Martin, this is so great. Thank you so much for, for right. chatting Thank with you. me. Thank you. Sure. Well, Ellen, what? <laughs> there's not much to say after that. No, not at all, but it, it did make me remember what a cool idea it is to have like a prayer that you repeat yeah. and you practice. He said it makes your life when you have a discipline like that. And you know, we talked about hell, but that's really the thing that was happening while we were evangelizing is that mainline Christians have liturgy. They have repeated phrases. They have repeated prayers. They usually use the book of common prayer in some way. Catholics do this as well. And that's something that is mostly missing from evangelical life. We we do say Lord, Lord that? God it, a lot. Is <laughs> Daddy. I, I worked with a guy who every time he prayed, he, he said, Daddy. Oh, wow. That was gross. That's weird. But yeah. why is it that we, we never did that? Was that because we... It it's was fear like, of Catholicism, empty yeah. ritual. Yeah. Basically, like, new rituals form, and then uh, given enough time, some Christian offshoot movement goes, those rituals are dead. And yeah. they start with fewer rituals. And like American evangelicalism is like the least number of rituals you can have. Yeah. And now we have none. And now people our age are rebelling against that and going to rituals. Because I remember when you started no going, because <clears throat> you just wanted like liturgy. You were just yeah. like, get me to the liturgy. I need that liturgy. I yeah. need a prayer. How do you I, pick a prayer? How do you pick something that you're going to repeat over and over for the rest of your life? I don't know. Maybe the prayer picks you, Ellen. Oh my God. Uh, you know, if the, you have a prayer for me, email. Email Ellen reads email. Ellen reads emails. Gmail.com. <laughs> you could, no, you can send it to us at depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. If you have something that you love that gives you life, that'd be great. I would rather yeah. not Google it. Yeah. Well, that Dan, is a, will you forward that to me? That's a good not, use of Google. Not hoard the prayer for yourself. <laughs> Could you please be less selfish with your beautiful prayers? I just want to talk about Dale's books. I would recommend his latest book, Biblical Truths. If you listen to this and you are of a theological bent and you found it interesting, uh, I've been loving that book. But if you don't need to think theologically, then don't read any of his yeah, books. Yeah, be like me. Ellen, don't ever read any of his books. I'm fine without him. And he would tell you that. I really like him. I think he's smart and I'm glad you're reading his books. But just, if you're I'm not going to, if you don't need to be theological, just focus on loving God and your yeah. neighbor and you're good to go. And if you liked this type of episode or didn't like it while you were evangelizing, please let us know. If you liked it, email me. If you didn't like it, please email Dan <laughs> at Dan always responds to emails at gmail.com. <laughs> All right. See you guys. Retro. Re oh, my what's God. That word? Retributive. What's the word? I to don't know, but I don't even know where you're going with retributive. Retributive justice is like to retaliate. Ret retributive. Ret retributive. <laughs> That's the same thing. Retaliating <laughs> justice. That's the word. But it's just a weird word that you write, but don't say out loud. Some people write it. Nerds like Dale and I write it. <laughs>